When you teach the same classes every year, it's very easy to fall into routines. Classes, though, can be much more fun for you and your students if you're willing to take some risk by experimenting with new teaching approaches. In this episode, we examine how one professor has engaged the students by introducing some very creative and fun assignments in her classes. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Wendy Watson, a senior lecturer in political science and pre-law advisor at the University of North Texas. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, thank you for having me. We're glad to have you here. Our teas today are... I am drinking Paris. It's a blend from Harney and Sons. We have that next door. Yeah, tasty one. I have Irish breakfast tea today. And I have ginger peach green tea. We invited you here to talk a little bit about some of the interesting things you're doing with your classes. Could you tell us first a little bit about the classes that you normally teach? Sure. In the state of Texas, there's a requirement that every student take two Introduction to American Politics courses. In our department, we refer to that as the full employment plan. So I teach both of those courses. And then other than that, I teach all of our law-related courses. I'm not the only one, but I teach all of the law-related courses. Our legal systems course, civil rights and civil liberties, the rights of criminal defendants, constitutional law, an LSAT prep class, gay rights in the Constitution, and a seminar on the death penalty in varying cycles. You do quite a few innovative things in your classes. And one of those is having your students rewrite the Constitution after a zombie apocalypse. Could you tell us a little bit about that activity? Yeah. The idea is that the zombie apocalypse has occurred. This is actually for one of the flavors of Introduction to American Politics. And this particular course deals with institutions, the founding of the Constitution, federalism, the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, and civil rights and civil liberties. The idea is that the zombie apocalypse has occurred. A huge portion of the population of the U.S. has been destroyed. And the remaining members of the country are required to rebuild the United States. And part of that is rewriting the Constitution. Essentially, what they're doing is building a government from the state of nature. But they don't know that. They think they're building a Constitution after the zombie apocalypse. And that's way more fun. It's a guided exercise. They get worksheets every week, making them think about what is bicameralism, what are the benefits of bicameralism? What are the drawbacks of bicameralism, et cetera? They don't just get to go off and write crazy things. They actually have to think about stuff. And then they work in groups to create these constitutions. One of the things that I really love about the course is that they actually do have to grapple with these issues. They sometimes get pretty heated. How large are the groups? Usually these introductory courses are about 125 students, and I put them in groups of about five to seven. And are these things that happen outside of class, in class, online? So I've taught the class as an online class, in which case it obviously happens online. But when I'm teaching the class as a face-to-face -face course, I actually do give them class time. 
having them do it outside of the class, nothing ever happens. Giving them the time in class keeps them from hating me and also ensures that they actually do provide some sort of useful product at the end. What assignments or exercises or things that you would normally do in class does this exercise replace? You know, it doesn't actually replace any exercises because if I weren't using this activity, all of their homework would be outside of class and they're still doing all of that. So what it's really replacing is me lecturing. And I've got no problem with that. And I don't think they have a problem with that. It's more exciting or more interesting for them to be doing something, talking to each other than it is to be sitting in a seat listening to me, I think. I'm pretty sure. And I think it's actually more educational for them to be engaging in the material as opposed to passively sitting and listening to me. Yes, all they're missing out on is me talking. (laughs) How did you decide to go in this direction and develop this particular activity? I was trying to think of a way to create a simulation that would last throughout that semester. So something that kind of continued over the course of a term. And I wasn't really sure what that would be. And I think we were watching The Walking Dead. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, how that all came together, I couldn't tell you. But yeah, I'm really happy with that. It's been adopted by several of my colleagues and by a professor at University of Whitewater. She used it in a summer program for high school students. And yeah, I'm really happy with how that one turned out. How did the students respond? You know, of course, there are always students who are not going to respond at all. But I've never had a student who actively said that they hated it, which is, I guess, good. I've had a lot of positive feedback, and I had one of my best student interactions ever over this particular assignment. Again, I'm going to apologize to all of my biology friends out there. One of the features of the assignment is that the zombies fall into two categories, the type 1 zombies who are traditional brain-eating zombies, and then the type 2 zombies who have developed a lesser mutated form of the virus. And so they have features of zombies. They have the shuffling gait and the slurred speech, but they have higher order cognitive thinking and they don't eat brains and they're just generally safe. But if two type two zombies have a child together, there is a probability or a possibility that their child will be a type one zombie. Again, this makes no sense at all since it's a virus and it just doesn't make any sense. But it raises this question of what do you do with type 2 zombies? Do you sterilize them? Do you kill them? What do you do with them? And they were grappling with this issue one day, and this poor student comes in, and he was, I swear to God, he was almost in tears because his group had decided collectively to exterminate the type 2 zombie. And he's like, what do you do when you encounter people who are terrible? And so we ended up having this long talk about how do you deal with the notion that there are Hitlers in the world? And I was like, well, you have to remember that there are Gandhis in the world. It was a long and lovely conversation about the essence of mankind and the balance of good and evil. And I kept emphasizing to him that this wasn't real and that his friends were not evil. But anyway, it was a great conversation. And I was so touched that he took it so seriously. It's just a testament to me of the fact that students really are interested in the material if you give them an opportunity to be interested in the material. It sounds to me too like it allows them to really grapple with the really difficult conversations that are around rights and lack of rights and who gets those rights that might be really uncomfortable if you talk about it in a real situation. But in this safe simulation, 
you can have some of those challenging conversations that you might not be able to have as effectively. Yeah, I think that's right. If you're talking about things like race or sexual orientation, you're always confronted with the fact that there are people in the room whose actual rights are implicated. And that does tend to make people censor themselves, perhaps. And that's not necessarily what you want in real active discourse. So when you're talking about something that is seemingly unreal, and it is unreal, there's zombies, it's not real. I do think that it gives people the opportunity to think through issues in a way that is safer, but also more honest. But the type two zombies add to the degree of difficulty or the level of challenge there. Yes, exactly. You've also created a 500-person learning community. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was nuts. <laughs> My university decided to try to create a variety of different models of learning communities, sort of all at once. That alone was nuts. But I was going to be involved in a combined course learning community, so without any residential component. And I found this wonderful man in the psychology department who probably had no idea what he was getting into. And we created this community that was 500 students, his introduction to psychology course and my introduction to political behavior course. That's the other half of our introductory American politics duo. And our courses were back to back. So there were times when he could have two hours and times when I could have two hours. And we focused on political psychology, specifically as it related to campaigns. And over the course of the semester, they each had to read three or four articles and write one-page papers about them, little summaries. And then they came together and they shared their information. And they had to come up with a campaign strategy for either one or two presumed political presidential candidates. At the time, we thought that was going to be Clinton and Rubio. That obviously didn't happen, but they created these poster presentations. And then we picked from among those poster presentations the 10 best. And we took those to UNT on the Square, which is a little gallery space in downtown Denton. And we invited faculty and university administration. And we invited the Denton Record Chronicle, which is our local newspaper. And the students really got into it. The ones who won showed up with their little red bow ties if they were representing Rubio and they had candy at their stations. And it was really awesome. It was great. What do you think one of the biggest learning gains was for students who were in this learning community scenario where you were diving into something in depth from two different points of view? I think one of the things that they gained was an understanding that these two disciplines actually interacted with one another, that psychology and political science weren't these sort of siloed ideas, that they actually were related to one another. And I think one of the other things that they learned is that what they learned in class actually had implications for the real world, that things that we were learning in psychology and political science had implications for how politicians were actually running their campaigns and that they could take the skills that they were learning at UNT and potentially apply them to a job, which is always a big thing. <laughs> Getting a job is good. What level are the students in these classes? In those particular learning communities, most of the students were freshmen, first-year students, because they had to be advised into them. Somebody had to sort of point them towards this pair of courses. So they tended to be freshmen. 
Otherwise, these courses actually tend to draw students all the way up to their senior year because they put them off until they have to graduate. But for these particular communities, they pretty much had to have an advisor say, hey, here's a good idea. Take both of these courses. They tended to be freshmen. Did you find that the learning community method worked particularly well with first year students? I think for a lot of types of innovation, it doesn't necessarily, but I think for this, it did, because I think their desire to please <laughs> was strong. And I think that they didn't have any preconceived notions of what college classes were supposed to be like. So they were maybe more receptive to the idea of doing something different. For all they knew, this is what it was supposed to be like. <laughs> and getting that introduction to an interdisciplinary view of the world is probably good to do before they get too deeply into the silos of their majors. I agree. Yeah. So you're full of brainy ideas. And another one that <laughs> another one that you pulled off was an online electoral college simulation game. Can you tell us about that too? Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. I actually have to give most of the credit for the online component to our office here. It's called CLEAR, the Center for Learning Enhancement, Assessment, and Redesign. The assessment component has largely gone out of CLEAR but that's still what we call them. They do all of our online supports, learning management system, redesign, helping us create online courses, all of that sort of work. And I had had sort of a low-tech version of this course. Originally, they were working in groups. I always make them work in groups. I don't know why. But they had groups. And the idea was I used the map from 270 to win, which has sort of the baseline electoral college predictions and which states are going red, which states are going blue, et cetera. And then students had campaign money, and they could essentially bet their money on individual states. And if you were the Republican Party and you bet $50 here, but then the Democrats bet 51, then the Democrats won the state. So whoever bet more money in a state won the state. And so you could see the strategy of betting in different states, of spending more campaign money, more campaign resources in each state. And as you won a state, the states that were blue moved around or the states that were red moved around, and you could see the total, who was winning the Electoral College. And it was played in three rounds. But this was a huge pain to implement in the classroom with having to update this Excel spreadsheet every round and get people's votes every round. It was a nightmare. So Clear created an online version for us that allowed students to play against each other online. And it was really slick. It was beautiful. I loved it. So I'm noticing the loved as opposed to the I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you noticed that, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah. So I think what the, another point to make here is that if you're going to launch into one of these grand plans, you really do want to have some long-term commitment from your university. I love my university, but long-term commitment is not their forte. And for the learning community, for example, Adriel and I, my co-conspirator and I, we put a lot of effort into that course and we ended up offering it twice. It went really well both times. But to the extent we needed money, it came from a Title III grant that ended. So we didn't have the money anymore. And then we also depended very much on help from the registrar, from advising, and from admissions to help us coordinate all of the details. Because it was no small matter, right? It was actually very difficult. It wasn't just us. There were all sorts of offices that had to help us out with this. And the university basically was like, oh, we're done. <laughs> that was difficult. 
So we just lost the necessary institutional support for maintaining that program. And with the Electoral College, I went for like a year and a half without teaching that course. So it didn't get used because nobody else was using it. And so Clear stopped supporting it on their website. It just went away and it's just gone. (laughs) So just one of those things. You kind of need to get it in writing (laughs) because there's a tremendous amount of startup costs associated with these programs. And unless you know that that's going to carry forth and this investment is going to pay out over an extended period of time, it can be a little bit demoralizing. In one of your other experiments in class, you (laughs) did something with a mystery room. Could you tell us how that worked? Oh, yeah. That was this last year. That was so much fun. Yeah. So the game was actually called Free Lucky. Lucky is UNT's unofficial mascot. He's an albino squirrel. He's actually not lucky at all. We've had a series of luckies on campus. And the only two that I'm aware of, one got carried off by a red-tailed hawk and the other one got hit by a car. They're not lucky. (laughs) But we call them lucky. (laughs) And you can get little lucky dolls. And so I got little lucky dolls and I shoved them in little cloth pencil cases and I put combination locks on the pencil cases. You had to get them out by undoing the lock. And I put my groups of students, groups again, in various study rooms in the library. And they each had a little encased, enshrouded lucky in their room. And then They started the game with question on their learning management system on Blackboard. This was for an LSAT prep course. And the beautiful thing about the LSAT is that you have these questions with very specific answers. No question. Here's the answer. That's it. For the first question, if they got it right, it led them to a web page with another question. If they got it wrong, it led them to a web page that had nothing. And then it sent them back to the original page and so forth and so on. It sent them to various pages around the web, some of them with clues, some of them with other questions. Eventually, it would take them off of the web. And sometimes it pointed them to different clues around the room. There were various and sundry things on the table, some of which mattered. There was a playing card that actually was a clue. But then there were things like spools of thread that meant nothing. There was an envelope taped under the table that had a whole series of questions. And the questions there, if you answered them all, there were four of them, and those gave you letters. And then there was a tongue depressor on the table that helped you translate the letters into numbers. And that was the code to the combination lock. And that allowed you to free lucky. And the first team that got lucky to me, I was sitting in the lobby of the library, first team that got lucky to me won. And they won packets of colored highlighters, which doesn't sound exciting, but they were all pre-law students. And that's like gold in the legal community is colored highlighters. It was exciting. They were really thrilled. It sounds like fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. It was. What made you decide to do a mystery room? Well, you know, we have one here in Denton, and I think it looks really cool, and I want to go, but I can never get people to go with me. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to create my own. And I wanted to do something, again, that was interesting. As much as the LSAT prep stuff is really interesting and important for my students, it's not super engaging. (laughs) Uh, You know, we could stand up there and write logic game trees on the board for hours on end, but that's not exciting. That's not even lecture exciting. That's just really, really boring. So I wanted to at least break up the class a little bit by having something that was more engaging, more active, something that was interesting. 
And it brings in a little gamification too, where there's some incentives yeah. and competition. Yeah. Oh yeah. The competition was big. I had one group that came down with Lucky after about a minute and a half. I was like, you did not answer all those questions. And the guy who handed me Lucky is like, you gave this puzzle to a Marine. <laughs> I was like, so did you just bust the lock? He's like, no, I didn't have to bust the lock. I could get him out without busting the lock. I was like, you have to open the lock. <laughs> you can't cheat. <laughs> so they went back. They did it. But anyway, yeah, it was definitely a game to them. <laughs> they were serious about it. That's hysterical. <laughs> and unexpected, right? <laughs> Completely. A common theme of all this is that you seem to experiment with your classes and take some risks in trying new things. Could you tell us a little bit about what prompts you to do that? A couple of things. One is that, honestly, it keeps me interested in the courses. I can get bored with the material as much as they can. In fact, they sit through it for a single semester. I sit through it for semester after semester after semester. And you can only talk about the appointments clause for one or two times before you're like, oh my God, I'm going to open my eyes out. This is really dull. And that's something I actually enjoy, right? I think the appointments clause is interesting. I still want to shake it up a little bit. And the other reason is that I really do believe that students learn better if they are engaged. And as much as I love to hear myself speak, I don't necessarily think that they love to hear me speak. I think that they get more out of my class if they are doing something, if they are seeing some connection between what we're doing and the real world if they can see themselves actively engaged, if they have a sense that they have power in the class, some sense of control over their own education. I think all of those things are really valuable to them. So it's a little more effort for me, but I think the payoffs are worth it. So all of these examples that you've shared with us today are really different from one another. They use different technologies, different setups. What is your advice to someone who wants to take some risks and try something new, but it's something that they've never done before? Start small. Don't start with a 500-person learning community, which is what I did. That was dumb. It worked out, but it was dumb. Yeah, start small. Collaborate with somebody so you have somebody to lean on and share ideas. And that's maybe why the learning community worked, is that I had been part of something called the core academy. So we were focused on these sorts of things together. And then I had my co-teacher, Adriel, to work with. So I think having a support system and starting small is the way to go. You don't have to do a semester-long simulation. You can devote one class to something. Use a method that lots of people are using, like team-based learning. And you don't have to do that all semester. You could do it for one class. There's nothing wrong with starting small and then getting bigger. Did you start small? I did not. <laughs> Somehow I suspected yeah. that would be the answer. Yeah, that's not my style. But again, I think that if you're worried about getting started, if you are less stupid than I am, then don't hesitate to start small. There's nothing wrong with that. Have you had any student resistance to some of the alternative or non-traditional methods that you've been using in your classes? I get a little resistance sometimes. For the most part, they actually seem to enjoy it. Every now and then I'll get a student who seems to think that I'm not doing my job. I mean, I've had students who flat out on evaluations have said, I expected to come to class and hear you talk and you didn't. I'm like, really? <laughs> that was what you expected? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I assume that that is the expectation, but like you're disappointed that, that didn't happen? Can't imagine that. And of course, there's always, as I mentioned, a lot of these things involve group work and 
a lot of students have resistance to group work, even when the group work ultimately works out okay, they still are annoyed that I put them in groups. Just the anxiety associated with group work carries over to the end of the semester. And of course, some groups don't work out. You've always got somebody in some group that either doesn't pull their weight or is responsible for a part of the project and fails to turn it in or somebody in the group who's bossy. So you always have some group that's got a problem. And I usually try to mediate that situation, but sometimes they don't come to me until it's too late. So there are always points of contention, but they're relatively few. And honestly, I've always got a few complaints when I lecture too. I'd like to say I never have complaints there, but I do. I read this really great article about you being a mystery novelist. Can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I am a mystery writer. I started writing a long time ago, right around 2001, actually, bad year. But I had my first novel published in 2009. I write a type of mystery called a cozy, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's cozy. They are light, often funny mysteries, amateur sleuths, so no cops or private investigators. They can be in the book, but they're not the primary character. Usually female sleuths, small town, no sex or violence on the page. I mean, obviously somebody dies, but it happens off the screen. And they're really quite delightful. And like I said, PG-13, I actually included the word bitch in my first book. And it wasn't even calling somebody bitch. It was like, son of a bitch. I hope I'm not destroying your podcast by saying <laughs> that, using that word. And uh, I actually got nasty emails about using that word. Really? Oh, my goodness. I don't use that word there anymore. Yeah, so I started writing. I'm working on number seven right now. And that's that. And how do you manage that along with all your innovation in class? It seems like that's a lot of demands on your time. How do you allocate your time? Not well. Yeah, I, I was talking about this with a colleague this morning. We were talking about this LSAT prep course she's teaching it this semester, about the fact that pre-law students really should be studying a lot for the LSAT. It's a huge portion of their application. And yet, for some reason, they don't. And instead, they focus so much on their GPA, which is important, but honestly, not as important as their LSAT score. They shouldn't let their GPA slide either, let's be clear. But in the grand scheme, they should be focusing on their LSAT score. We were discussing the fact that the LSAT is way far away, but their GPA is right in front of them. And so that just feels like the thing they need to tackle right now. And for me, my deadlines are way far away and my course is right in front of me. So I tend to focus on my coursework, and I'm not so great about meeting my deadlines. And I apologize deeply to my editor, but that's just the way it is. I do, though, have a calendar, a very detailed calendar that I keep that has specific time set aside for every single thing that I do. Not always true to that calendar, but I do have a calendar, and it includes time set aside for writing. Do you find that your writing life and your teaching life influence one another? Yes. Certainly, my academic life has influenced my writing life. One of my books was set on a college campus, and I got to kill off a couple of people that I didn't like so much, which was awesome. And, <laughs> and certainly, I think that my tendency toward narrative, toward storytelling, influences my use of hypotheticals in my classes to the extent that I'm sort of telling stories, like the zombie apocalypse. I didn't just write like a paragraph, there has been a zombie apocalypse. It's this 
probably too long story about this has happened and it's all dramatic. And that's definitely a carryover from my writing life. I imagine that those details, though, and that spike in the climax to a story are all the things that get students really engaged and interested and buy into the simulation and take it seriously, as opposed to something that's a little more surface level and that it's a little harder to imagine. Yeah. And I think sometimes one of the things my cozies tend to include is humor. At least I hope it's humor. And I tend to inject that into my hypotheticals a lot. And I think that that helps. One of the simulations that I do in my legal systems class is a negotiation divorce case. And each side in the negotiation has information about their client. And some of it's common knowledge that both sides have. And then the wife attorney has knowledge that only the wife has provided. And the husband's attorney has information that only the husband has provided. And they know that that information is going to come up during the negotiation in a series of PowerPoint slides. They don't know when that's going to happen. But the idea is that all of a sudden the wife is going to blurt something out during the negotiation. They also don't know that there's information that the husband and wife have not told their own attorney. And that's going to come out in the course of the the negotiation. And so I had great fun crafting this simulation, like the things that the husband and wife have done and the pieces of information that come out are delicious. And the students have so much fun finding out about these details. And yeah, I think that that makes the whole simulation so much more engaging. Instead of just calculating the appropriate alimony, I think it's a lot more fun. Can you share a couple of tips from your creative writing self that might help other people come up with hypotheticals or examples that they could use in their classes? Yeah, I think one thing that you want to do is provide detail. If you're going to create a hypothetical, create a character to go with the hypothetical and then provide some detail about the character and the setting and those sorts of things. It really enriches the hypothetical. It doesn't all have to be completely relevant. In fact, sometimes it's better if it's not all relevant, because then it forces the student to look past the things that aren't relevant to find the things that are. And I think that's probably the key to include at least one person in your narrative and then provide some detail, provide a setting, provide some description of your character, provide some element of detail about what's happening so that it's not sterile or clinical. Because that's, like you said, that's really going to draw the student in, in a way that sort of A happened, B happened, C happened, will not. That's great advice. (laughs) We always end with the question, what are you going to do next? So this year, I'm actually not teaching, which is really weird for me. Last year, this time, I took a position as the director of the university core curriculum. And so this year, I'm going to be continuing with my pre-law advising, but otherwise I'm focused on the university's core curriculum. So I will be engaged in assessment, which is everybody's favorite thing, but I'm also going to be developing a lot of programs related to our core. So some programs related to writing across the curriculum, some programs related to bringing back, I hope, some of our learning community endeavors, and possibly exploring some other options that would allow us to really enrich our university core curriculum for our students. When I talk to students now, they talk about them as the basics or the things that they have to check off. And I want them to think of those classes as something more than that. So that's what's next for me. Sounds like the right person might be in that job to help (laughs) inspire students. (laughs) I think sometimes that's a hard sell these days, helping students recognize 
the value of a liberal education and get them excited about it and help them find connections. Yeah, I agree. I think I have a tough road ahead of me, but I'm going to do my best. I look forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to come back sometime. We'd love to have you back. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon and sharing all your great initiatives in your classes. And I hope it'll inspire a lot of our listeners. Yeah, thank you. Really enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Brewer.